Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. We get the best. I've said that before. You've heard that before over the years. It's been way too long since I have spoken to, I'll say it, the grandfather of dog training. (laughs) The father of dog training. That might be more appropriate, Dr. Ian Dunbar. We wouldn't have, unless someone else would have thought of it, we wouldn't have puppy classes the way they are today if it wasn't for this man, who, by the way, has been doing positive reinforcement dog training, what's called lore dog training, which we'll talk about forever, for decades. And also, he developed the serious puppy training method back in the early 1980s. This latest book, there are so many books that he's written. His latest book, Barking Up the Right Tree, The Science and Practice of Positive Dog Training, Dr. Ian Dunbar. It has been way too long. What a pleasure to talk to you. And to you, Steve. I'm glad we got to see each other on screen before we started. I think it's been since 2013 when we drove from San Francisco to Chicago. So anyway, it's good to be with you again. So let's get to it. Yep. I want to start here. Dog training, it seems, every couple of years, there's a new trend. And and now I see this trend that I want you to comment on. Animal shelters, and I'm just being real here. Animal shelters, greatly the no-kill facilities, and I have no idea what the, I have no problem with the notion of no-kill, and I'm diving right into this, have said to dog trainers, you need to fix, quote-unquote, this aggressive dog. You need to do it fast. They don't care about the method used one way or the other. You need to do it fast. And we'll pay you X amount of dollars so we can bring back this dog into our facility and adopt this dog out as quickly as we can. I think that notion is one of the reasons, just one of the reasons, why we've seen an increase in dog bites. I know this is nothing you've written about necessarily in the book, but in a roundabout way you have. I'm curious as to what you think. Well, two points, really. Um, I, I agree. I, I think shelters, you know, when Kelly started Open Poor, it was to turn shelters from cages you know, waiting for adoption into a cross between a university and a country club. And so to resolve the problems that are there. And you obviously, uh, this whole thing about a quick fix using aversive method, it's a total fallacy, as I sort of logically point out in the book. Yes. If aversive stimuli were a quick fix, then aversive stimuli would be a rare bird. You would rarely see them because they would work. And if they work to inhibit and eliminate the problems, in this case, biting, then there's no need for any more aversive stimuli. But it's not what we see. What we see is leash jerk after leash jerk, walk after walk, day after day, you know, shock after shock and so on. So I agree it needs to be fixed, but we won't do it with aversive stimuli. We will do it with food treats and praise and life rewards and and mega secondary reinforcers. The second point is a very important one. Rather than humane societies lumping this on dog trainers, they should be the people to prevent dogs from ever becoming uh, aggressive or fearful in the first place. 
I mean, every shelter dog was once a puppy in the community crying out for an education so he would fit in with people. I think it's the dog professions and especially the dog professions that see puppies when they're eight weeks old or their owners like pet stores, veterinarians who should say, if you don't do anything now, as your dog gets older, it will naturally, predictably become increasingly wary to the unfamiliar, i.e. unfamiliar people, unfamiliar places, unfamiliar situations, and other dogs. So you must, at the very least, socialize young puppies, neonates, very young puppies, less than eight weeks in the breeding kennel, and especially the first month at home, with loads and loads and loads of unfamiliar people. And this is not being done. Who should spread this information? How about humane societies and shelters who are always sending out newsletters because they depend on donations? Why not give out the information to resolve the problem in the first place? This is not rocket science. No one is socializing young puppies. Breeders, you know, a young puppy in a kennel is lucky if he sees two adult women the breeder and her best friend. We need men, we need children, you know, before the puppy's eyes and ears open. You know, it can't see or hear, but it can smell and it can feel. And of the, you know, 13 most common subliminal bite triggers, seven of them had to do with touch. And the others are trainers, men, and unfamiliar people, all identified by smell, by a a neonate. And then when they're three weeks old, four weeks old, five weeks old, this is when you make a reliable adult dog that doesn't have the fear of people. And if we look at this from a humane point of view, now we have, you know, everything is fear-free this and stress-free that. Well, I'm sorry. Puppies these days are stressed to the gills because no one is socializing and handling them when young. A lot of them don't stand a chance and that is what is inhumane and totally unfair to dogs. Uh, and the, the, go ahead. And I, I will have a further point. <laughs> yes. You know, talking about dogs because that's what pulls on people's heartstrings. And when I say it's inhumane about dogs, but you know what? Who I care about the most? The owners of people that buy puppies from breeders unsocialized and uh, adopt dogs from shelters. They don't know how much a fearful adult dog can really ruin their quality of life. It's already ruined for the adult dog now, but this is unfair to people. And so part of the reason I wrote the book is in a couple of chapters telling the reader, prospective, you know, puppy buyers or prospective adopters, you can change this. You can change the whole kennel club breeding profession and you can change humane societies. You know, now be very careful with your buying dollar or your donation dollar and only, for example, donate to humane societies that use an open poor type program where hundreds of volunteers are in the kennel each day socializing and training the dogs. You know, the ones that aren't aggressive and biting, they all need training because if they go home and pee on the carpet and bark and chew everything, they'll probably come back to the kennel again for a second stay. 
Well, so we, I, need, we need for you to explain when we come back from the break what open paw is, since you brought that up, because we can't assume people know, I know, but we can't assume that. And also, bigger issue for me are pet stores. So here they are from usually puppy mills, but in some cases, large commercial facilities. Anyway, they're not being socialized. They're brought into a pet store where, yes... They meet all sorts of people, if you call watching people walk by the cage, meeting people. And now you've got even more of an issue, in my opinion, than what shelters, everything you're talking about with shelters. So we will talk about that, and we will talk about dog training and how to do it right. That's what's most important, and that's what the book is about also, greatly about, Barking Up the Right Tree, The Science and Practice of Positive Dog Training with The Man. And he is The Man, Dr. Ian Dunbar, when we come back. Dr. Ian Dunbar is here on WGN, the name of the book, Barking Up the Right Tree, The Science and Practice of Positive Dog Training. I want to ask you about, you mentioned open paw. I happen to know what that is. It's been around for a while, uh, but you need to explain it. Well, you know, I back in the 80s, I did a lot of work in, in shelters and humane societies. You know, I developed what was probably the first behavior program um, in anyone. They used to have education programs. And I said, no, it's not educating uh, the people. It's training the dogs you have in your care, giving them an education. Um, and uh, that was at the San Francisco SPCA. But then Kelly and I got asked, could we do And something? Kelly, you have to explain who Kelly is. Kelly is my second wife. Mm-hmm. And um, we work together still, you know, with DunbarAcademy.com. Anyway, um, we were asked, could we do something to bring the Berkeley um, Humane Society and the uh, Animal Control Facility to work together? So we developed Open Paw. And this was based at the Berkeley Humane Society, which, oh, you know, had no money. And it was really a squalid facility. And we said, well, we're going to start a program where every dog will be house trained within three days, the whole shelter. And we're going to do this with volunteers. And we ended up with hundreds of volunteers. We turned this place into a a village People would bring coffee and cakes, you know, and they would visit to train the dog, sometimes for 10 minutes. Like in the house training program, we had four time slots. First thing in the morning, lunch break, right after work, and then late at night to take every dog out to the doggy toilet that we made and to tell them to go pee. So they were taught to pee and poop on cue and then heavily reward them with about six treats. And all the dogs would say, why didn't you tell us this before? You know, <laughs> I saved up my urine. I didn't know I could cash it in for treats. And so the <laughs> program was, it was so slick because volunteers were trained up and it was four levels of volunteer according to what they were doing with the dogs and the access they had to the dogs. Level one was outside the kennel using classical conditioning You just walk around the kennel, give every dog a piece of food. No food in bowls anymore. They were fed by the volunteers by the hand. And then the second uh, training technique was called wait and reward training. You stand outside the kennel and you just wait for the dog to do something good, like approach, look at you, sit, lie down, stop barking, stop jumping, or the biggie look cute. 
And then you say, good puppy, and you toss in three treats. Because looking cute is their quickest pass out of this shelter. All they got to do is look cute at someone, and they'll probably be taking home because people tend to select dogs and puppies the same way they select their, you know, lifetime human mates based on coat color confirmation. What is that? Well, is that how I selected my wife? Okay, it's usually it's one look, one look, <laughs> and you say, "Wow, man, you know, he's got a cute butt or something." Yeah, <laughs> look at his butt when he's seven. <laughs> you know, you're selecting this guy for life. So let's get real. So we turned the shelter into an educational facility in the shelter. But how it worked was, as we trained the volunteers, they went back home and trained their dogs. And then their neighbors saw it and they trained their neighbors. So the training of the dogs was actually the training of the volunteers. And the whole community became very, very different. And the shelter was, I mean, we had people come and visit us from Australia, Japan and Europe just to see what we had done with this shelter. And then we got the volunteers to paint it, and it actually looked presentable. But it really had no money. It only had a few volunteers that had no behavior training at all. And we turned it into, you know, I I think one of the best shelters in the world. Um, And then it started to spread. And, and, and now they're and now they're right. It has spread, and now there are shelters all over the world that do this, there, and certainly there all were, over the U.S. There, uh, there were lots, yeah, yeah, back in the sort of nineties and early aughts. But now it's like dog training is going backwards. I mean, for me, this is agonizing to watch. I think every aspect of dog behavior and training reached. Uh, I saw the natural way when I grew up, and then I saw the on-leash way, you know, where we command and and correct. And then the revolution in the 80s with off-leash, lure-reward puppy training until everyone was doing it. So we could hold events where, say, 80 dogs were off-leash in an arena all at once. And there there wasn't a growl because the dogs were socialized and trained off-leash. But now it's going back. You know, puppy classes are going back on leash. We don't praise as much. You know, a lot of people, you know, click instead of praising. It's sort of, it's horrible for me to see that we don't have the glory days of the 90s and, and the early aughts. But And this is what one of the major things that made me write this book, to look at, it's not just being positive. You know, everyone says, oh, I'm totally positive. The question is, which of the, um, there's actually seven major reward-based training techniques are you using? Because some are really complicated, some are really time-consuming, but lure-reward training and then weight and reward training are the way to go. Well, Lure- and the the other thing is that, and I want to get back to something that we said we would talk about, and therefore we should. But you know what? I've got we may disagree about clicker training, but I suspect you would agree with this, and that's walking around with a clicker that uh, provides an instant sound, and the dog knows the dog has done something well, but. Holding the clicker, holding the leash, holding the treats, and all of that is kind of complicated for your average person to do. And, I mean, we only have two hands. And what you are suggesting is also so 
basic and so simple. If you do this, I mean, it's like when, boy, oh boy, Dr. Dunbar, if every time I spoke to you, a thousand dollars fell from the sky, you'd be wanting to talk to me all the time, right? And this is, in essence, the simplicity of what you're talking about, and you and others, science all over the world, and you demonstrate this in the book, Barking Up the Right Tree, has shown that this does work. The, yeah, every reward-based training technique has pros and cons. Uh, lure reward training has a significant con that people don't phase out the lure so it becomes a bribe and because they don't understand the process the simplest training technique is definitely wait and reward you just watch your dog and when he does something nice which is most of the time you say good boy you give a treat the i think training techniques that use training tools we must phase them out including food lures food rewards um and collars, leashes, clickers, um, so that we know the dog is reliable off-leash. All right, now I'm going to stop you there, only because I need to stop you there for time. We'll be back with Dr. Ian Dunbar barking up the right tree, which he's been doing for decades when we come back. Check it out under PetCast at WGNRadio.com. So what you do, go to WGNRadio.com and look for the podcast and then scroll down and you'll see my name, Steve Dale's PetCast. And I interview really interesting people, I think. Uh, we talked to, for example, Dr. Mary Gardner about end-of-life issues. Uh, we talk about how do you know when the time is right. Uh, we talk about things that you can do to help geriatric dogs and cats at home and to improve their quality of life. Uh, but we have other guests as well, a variety of different guests and you could check it out. They're the best in the veterinary world, in the animal welfare world, at WGNRadio.com. Click on PetCast and add us to your regular podcast listening. Next week on this show, Dr. Natalie Marks talks about how to keep your pets safe when the weather gets very cold. Dr. Ian Dunbar is here. The name of the book, Barking Up the Right Tree, The Science and Practice of Positive Dog Training. I remember... Uh, at some point in time, there was a popular dog trainer, I'm going back about 15 years, 12 years, somewhere in there, on Animal Planet, and and uh, the, the dog whisperer is who I'm talking about, and we finally got, it was a meeting, I was on the board with the American Humane Association at the time, and we had a meeting with his people, and, you know, it was amazing what was going on, because first of all, he was presenting what he was presenting on television, and the American Humane Association, wasn't only me, the entire board said, what he's doing actually can cause all sorts of problems. It's inhumane to the dogs, but potentially dangerous for kids, especially, to try this. So National Geographic Channel uh, actually agreed with us, and they, or at least allowed us to have, I don't know that they really agreed, on screen warnings. You know, don't try this at home, this is only for entertainment, etc., and it didn't matter. The ratings were still as high. We thought, okay, now people aren't going to watch it because we're discrediting, in a sense, what he is doing. Finally, uh, we met with him in person and his people, and we said, okay, write a book where you're including others as well. And he did include voices such as your voice back in the day. But you know what? You have been the voice of reason. You have been the voice that dog trainers, 
many dog, I'd argue most dog trainers ought to be listening and have been listening to for a very long time. So those who know dog training know you are the guy who should have had that show. You are the guy who has created so much of what we take for granted today. So as just a, a dog parent, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Dunbar. Right. Thank you, Steve. I mean, it's what I just said is is so true. Now, I mentioned before, you were talking about the importance of socialization. You were talking about where shelters sometimes fail here. I'd argue that one of the problems is more and more millennials are going to, even though in many states now and, and in even more cities, especially the state which you live in, California, and the entire state of California, dogs cannot be sold at pet stores. However... There are lots of places where they can be sold. And these dogs, I'd argue, are woefully under-socialized, not to mention having a whole host of medical issues. Is that a concern for you as well, the fact that people are turning to pet stores to buy the doodle dogs or the designer dogs or whatever it is they get? I I guess, you know, I'm not into blaming others i'm into saying this i think is a better way to do it for example i was lecturing in japan and i said you know if where they sell most dogs in pet stores and i said the pet store is an ideal place to socialize puppies to house train them to chew toy train them and teach them basic manners and if they only did that um, using customers to do all the training and sure. thereby educating them, they could charge twice as much for the puppies. And then you say to the owners, you know, what do you want? So anyway, Guy left my lecture and I thought I'd upset him. I met him afterwards. He owned the most prestigious pet store chain in Japan. And I said, did I upset you in the seminar? I said, no. I went to call my office to tell him we have a new program. <laughs> Kelly and, and I went to visit it. It was amazing. Every puppy was on a one-hour schedule in a crate, then they got it out, they took it to a toilet, said go pee for reward, go poop reward. Then they handled it, and if any customers are in the store, they told them how to handle it. Then they trained it, and this was in a sterilized area. And then after five, ten minutes, they put the puppy back in the cage, and the price was enormous. I couldn't believe. But Dr. Dunbar, uh, Japan has a different model than we do. And where these dogs are from in the first place is different than what is the case in America. And I don't see puppies. Listen, if pet stores did what you just said in America, more power to you. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, Well, I have seen it. I've been to like... Amish kennels where every puppy is on a one hour time slot and one child is responsible for the puppy to do all of this. Do I agree with selling puppies in pet stores? No. But the point is some pet stores, some breeders are doing an incredible job, whether they're breeding en masse, like, you know, uh, what we call puppy mills, they can still do a good job. And uh, in some cases, it's better than a lot of breeders. Now, having said that, I know breeders that do an unbelievable job raising their puppies. Sure. I know shelters who are incredible. But I think the, the most of the dog professions are not doing what they should be doing because they are the professions. 
How many pet stores do you know tell the owner of an eight-week-old puppy who's buying food that they should now house train it straight away, chew toy train it, and prevent separation anxiety right now, prevent aggression right now? How many veterinarians do this? Now, in the veterinary community, the latest flavor of the month is, you know, fear-free handling. Why don't you make it so the dogs, you can handle them any way you like? (laughs) And so we don't need to be careful when we're doing our job trying to save a dog's life that just been hit by a car. You know, um, I once remember being called out of a bar in Utah to help put a uh, dislocated shoulder back in a Bernese mountain dog. And it was excruciating agony. You know, the, 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 the vet was off duty too. You know, and he had no one to help him. And I said, is this Bernie's going to be okay? He says, yeah, he's in my puppy class. You Mm. just hold on. And the the dog screamed and he turned and looked at my hand, but he he never bit me. And then plop, the shoulders in and the dog's licking us and licking. You know, it's like you don't have, you know, uh, a guy that goes in for a proctology exam and he turns around and bites the doctor, you know. And in the same way, we can socialize animals that they don't react when handled, even when it hurts them, which often happens in in the veterinary profession. So I I think there's brilliant breeders out there. There's brilliant shelters. There's brilliant training techniques, but also there's not so good ones. All right. I want to talk about the training techniques that you talk about in the book, Barking Up the Right Tree. And greatly, that's what this book is about. You point out the science as well, that it's all backed up by science. And the thing for me, Dr. Dunbar, it's practical and easy to do. So let's start here. How important is it? Because I, I, here's what I witness. I can train the dog myself. I don't need to go to a so-called puppy class. And we've seen, in my view, the repercussions of not going uh, because of the pandemic. People couldn't go. And now we're seeing more problems in these dogs. They, I think because people think a, you know, a dog class is to teach you how to train your dog to heal, sit, and stay. No. The whole point of an off-leash puppy class is so the dog can meet 24 more unfamiliar people and be handled by them because they're the exercises. Grab a puppy's collar you haven't touched today and get him to sit and lie down. Now cradle him and, you know, it's all about socialization with people. Also, it bump starts their their dog-dog socialization because they must develop dog savvy so that they can deal with dogs that don't have sufficient dog savvy. You see, you know, if two dogs get into uh, an argy-bargy... The a what? Of- oh, what was that? Argy-bargy. I, 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 will exp- I will have you explain what the argy-bargy is when we come back. I've never heard that before. Barking up the right tree, the science and practice of positive dog training. Dr. Ian Dunbar, when we come back on WGN. It is Dr. Ian Dunbar, who I'm so honored to have on the show, Barking Up the Right Tree... The Science and Practice of Positive Dog Training. Do you still offer some of your books for free online? Um, actually, yes. We've been doing it for 20 years. First paper books, but then on at all of our websites, they can download the two free puppy books to warn owners, you know, let them know what's going to happen 
and to help them at the selection point look for a puppy that's been socialized to numerous unfamiliar people and it's house trained and chew toy trained and knows some basic manners or look for a puppy that hasn't been socialized and it's not being house trained or chew toy trained and you have to do it so um what's the what's the what's the website that people can go to well the major one now is dunbaracademy.com okay dunbar d-u-n-b-a-r academy.com so i've asked you thousands of questions i believe over the decades we've known one another i've never asked you this before what is an argy bargy um it's an english expression which means a like a battle or a scrap okay so that so That's you can cool. prevent dogs from getting into an english an- person what it means i i won't explain it on air <laughs> Well, you're on air now. So so the argy-bargy can be avoided with socialization. But what's more important is uh, we were talking earlier about potentially minimizing the number of dog bites. So you choose a dog trainer, but here's the problem. Not all dog trainers are the same. And if you ask a dog trainer about the other dog trainer, you're never going to hear a positive, you know. So how do you know which dog trainer Dr. Dunbar to choose? Well, that's what I sort of explain in the book, that breeders aren't the same, dog trainers aren't the same, shelters aren't the same. So I give people the questions to ask and what you look for. So with a dog trainer, um, I say, what you're looking for here, do you see substantial behavior change in the intended direction quickly? If you do, then the trainer is a trainer because they're training the dog. If you don't, then I don't think we can really define that trainer as a trainer. And so this is my response to a lot of when a lot of people are doing, like using weird techniques or techniques that other people say, oh, that's inhumane. I just say, what are you trying to teach? Because I don't see that the dog is learning. And so when we observe and quantify behavior, uh, and that's what a behaviorist does, Um, You're looking to quantify behavior and quantify behavior change. And so you want to go to class and watch. You want to see the trainer train. If they don't let you, look elsewhere. You want to see what's going on in the shelter, in the back rooms. Um, You know, and so I would say buyer beware or client beware, but I don't mean it in an obnoxious way. I mean, know what you're getting. I have a hospital appointment tomorrow. I have a new doctor. I should be asking him a few questions. I need sure. to know where he's in college, how long he's been doing this, where he graduated in his class. Because here's the deal about professions, all the doc professions, and your own human doctor. If we rank, if we say, quantify them according to any criterion, it could be diagnosis, it could be teaching healing or sit stays. Um, and then we rank order them. 50% will fall below criterion. Now, we are often very particular when we choose a plumber or buy a car. But when we go to a doctor or a dog trainer, we just assume they're all the same. But they're not. Half of them are below median. Which one do you want to deal with your dog, or in my case tomorrow, my body? I'm sorry, I want head of department. And I explain this to them. I just say I've been misdiagnosed terribly twice 
in the last seven years, and both misdiagnoses caused me seven years of pain. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. And <laughs> these doctors didn't even touch me. And I kept telling them, it can't be what you're saying because purely logical. I won't go into details. No, no, there. don't do that. But, but I listen, we have about four minutes left here. So here is what do those who offer praise and treats, they are sometimes criticized as being cookie pushers. How do you respond to that? Um, well, it depends whether they work. And a lot of people who are giving loads of treats, no, they're not training the dog. And so the question is, is the dog getting trained? Okay. So because I like using, so here's what I do. Non-aversive, absolutely non-aversive. There's no need for this lemur stuff, you know, least invasive, minimally aversive. I mean, it's a cop-out, non-aversive. Get it? Right. First thing we're going to do is to teach the dog ESL. We're going to teach the dog to understand our language <clears throat> so that we can communicate with it and give it very clear instructions prior to task so the dog knows what we want to do. Then we're going to motivate it to the max. We start with food rewards, but they aren't very motivating, especially when you give the same old treat over and over and over, you devalue them. So we're going to use life rewards in training. The things the dog wants, like playing with other dogs, walking, sniffing, interactive games, playing tag, tug, fetch, and this. And then... We are going to test for compliance, for reliability. And we produce a single score. It's called the response reliability percentage. So let's say we test uh, sit. But you see, because we've taught them to respond on cue, not just other training techniques where we wait for the dog to do it, but it's not. we're not teaching them to do it on cue. Because we're teaching a cued response, we can test how reliable is it. And I come up with a percentage score. And here's like real data. With a really good dog in the kitchen at food, at mealtime, it'll probably be 90%. Yes. Not 100, not 95. In the average pet home, it'll be 90%. Okay. Move to the living room, it'll drop to 70%. To your bedroom, to about 40. Go outside you probably dropped to 10 or 15%. And I need to stop you there only because of time. However, all of this and much, much more, much more is explained in the book, Barking Up the Right Tree, The Science and Practice of Positive Dog Training. And if I may add to that subtitle, Making Yourself a Success with Your Dog. Dr. Ian Dunbar, nobody like you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steve, for having me. I'll do it any time. <laughs> well, I'll take advantage of that. I'll have you back again because there is so much more to talk about. Thank you, Dr. Dunbar. Thank you, Steve, and thank you, everyone out there. I don't think this was would surprise Dr. Dunbar at all. Data's begin to trickle in regarding dog bites and how numbers of significant dog bites requiring a hospital visit are on the rise. Some of what's going on is merely a numbers game, as there are more dogs in the U.S. than ever before. But as 53% of households, most homes in America have at least one dog. Still, according to the Insurance Journal, the number of claims since 2003 has gone up more 
exceeding the percent increase in the number of dogs. So what's going on? Now, the Chicago Sun-Times wrote a story and said, well, the problems are greatly in underserved areas in Chicago. And I understand that. And they say one of the explanations is there aren't enough dog parks in those places. I understand that. And I agree with that. However, I don't agree with by providing dog parks, you will see a lowered number of dog bites. There's no correlation there that has ever been studied. So I don't think that's the case, though. Having dog parks there in all neighborhoods in Chicago is something I have been outspoken about and a proponent for for many years. I think our current system, making the community solely responsible for the dog parks, is unfair because part of that responsibility is financial. And some places can't necessarily afford that. Now, what Dr. Dunbar would be all about is saying it's about dog training, right? And it is. So there aren't as many positive reinforcement dog trainers, or for that matter, veterinarians. There are veterinary deserts in Chicago. There are dog training deserts in Chicago. And if there is a dog trainer, that dog trainer, it's so important that the dog trainer offers positive reinforcement, as we just talked about with Dr. Dunbar. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, on WGN.